We're in Matthew 16. We have been for three weeks. This is the fourth week. This is sort of a, a pivotal week because we're, we're, we're moving from one sort of teaching opportunity to another with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, so if you have your Bible, we're going to pick up and we're going to move off of 16 or 13 through 20 and start up in verse 21. And, and while you're turning there, we'll just make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, in, in verse number 13, you have Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? In verse 14, they say, well, they're saying John the Baptist, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. 15, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? I want to hear what you, I want to know what you have to say. I imagine this awkward silence uh, as they're, they're sort of looking at each other, trying not to make eye contact with Jesus. But then Peter finally uh, blurts out in verse number 16. In the literal Greek, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. And in verse, uh, verse number 17, you have this mountaintop experience for Peter where uh, Jesus says, good job. He says, good job, Simon, Simon uh, son of Jonah, good job. This, and then he goes on to say, this wasn't revealed to you uh, by man. You didn't come up with this on your own. God told you this. God put this in your heart, and you made this confession. And then in verse 20, after all this takes place, we see this, shh, but don't tell anybody yet that I'm the Messiah. And it's like you scratch your head a little bit. Why is he saying this after he just had this big moment? Today we're going to see why he said that. Today we're going to see why, Peter, or why Jesus said to the disciples, it's not yet time. Keep this to yourself just for a little bit longer. So in Matthew chapter 16, let's read a little bit together. He says in verse 21, or it says in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you compare what Mark writes in his gospel account in Mark 8.33, he gives us just a little bit of a more detail. He, he says, in, before he says, Get behind me, it says that he turned and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to read from your word, to, 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 to see this conversation, this event unfold between Jesus and his disciples. And God, I pray that as we have the last three weeks, that you reveal something to, as, as you have the last three weeks, that you would reveal to us something new today that helps us in our walk with you. And God, we pray that we are in the correct order in our walking and in our following and in our doing. And God, I pray that today's scripture makes that clear to us. God, give us a spiritual set of eyes today to see what you would have us see. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Before we dig into this text a little bit more, I want to ask you a, a question. What is the most foolish thing you have ever done in the name of love? Okay, just going to let that sit there with you. All right, I see husbands and wives sort of looking at each other, uh, bringing back some memories, and I'm going to leave the definition of the word foolish in your hands. 
Okay, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so is the definition of foolish today, right? So maybe, guys, maybe some of you guys are in the, the generation that has to do marriage proposals like bigger and better and cooler and more different than anybody else uh, on the planet. So, so maybe you enlisted the help of some friends and you did something in public to publicly display your love for your girlfriend, hoping that she would say yes to the proposal uh, and she would become your fiance and eventually your wife. Maybe Maybe you learned a song. Maybe, God forbid, you learned a dance that you performed in order to get her to say yes. Maybe that's the most foolish thing you've ever done. Ladies, maybe the most foolish thing you've ever done is to say yes to said proposal that was done in public. Again, foolish is in your hands today. That definition is in your hands I remember when I was in seventh grade and I was just getting into the youth group in the church where I grew up. And it wasn't like the, the Sunday night youth group that I was wanting to go to. It was a, an event. I think it was a bonfire. So they were going to roast hot dogs and play games. And I really wanted to go. But at the time, my hair was a little too long for my dad's liking. And he didn't ground me so much as he said, you can't do anything until you get a haircut. So I wanted to go to this event because there was a girl there that I thought I was in love with. Now, talking, we're seventh grade, okay? So, but I wanted to go, and but Dad said, not until you get a haircut. So I tried to get Mom to cut my haircut. She always cut my hair, um, and she was busy in the garden with Dad, and she, and she wasn't going to stop that to come and cut my hair so that I could go. So I thought, I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going, not, not that, okay? I, I, I'm seventh grade, so I'm not cutting my own hair. But I go to my grandma, and if you guys know, have heard me talk about my grandma, I love her, all right? Um, and too much to my sisters and, and cousin's chagrin, I was knowingly her favorite. Um, and so I went and thought, Grandma will certainly help me out, and she did. So I sat down on the stool, on their back porch, or on their side porch, and she pulls out a bowl. I still love my grandma. But she, she proceeded then to cut my hair in a bowl cut, and it may look good on somebody. It did not on me. And that was a time where you didn't wear a hat into the church building, let alone keep it on during service or anything else. So I'm like trying to figure out how to hide this and everything, and it didn't go so well because I took matters into my own hands. And I'm, I'm, I, my memory's not as good as it once was, and I forget things, but I think that's about the most foolish thing that I've ever done in the name of love. I had a cousin who thought that the best thing to do to declare his love for his girlfriend was to have her name tattooed right here on his neck for everybody to see, right? And we will just say that her name is Mary. It's not, but we're going to use her name as Mary today. So he had Mary's name tattooed on his neck right here so all friends and family could see. It's now much, much later than when he got the tattoo. Today he has a, a, a family, uh, and he, 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 he loves a lady whose name is not Mary. But that reminder of his undying love for Mary is there on his neck. Probably, I think he would say with you, that's the most foolish thing he's ever done in the name of love. My foolishness, husbands, wives, my cousin, our foolishness in those situations was prompted by love. And unfortunately, love often leads to life's most egregious errors. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. 
Let's look at this scenario because I, mean, I, I am the leader of the pack when it comes to giving the Apostle Peter a bad time and just giving him a hard time about how he could follow Jesus around day and night for a period of three years and still just do bonehead things and say completely stupid stuff. But I think part of the reason that I like Peter so much is because I see myself in Simon Peter. I see that same reactionary type of living things out, that same passion that's worn on your sleeve. And that's what happens here. Today, we must remember that Peter's motives were born out of love. But I want you to imagine this scene. Okay, Peter still had to be feeling a little bit puffed up about what Jesus just said to him. Nobody else said it. Peter said it. Right? He said it. He, it came from somewhere, he, and we see that he still doesn't completely understand it. But Jesus says, good job. And in fact, sort of places him as, as the leader of the twelve, as this guy who's going to be the first of the stones in the wall that is the church. He handed him the keys to the kingdom that's to be passed to every other believer uh, then and throughout every generation up to now. So you've got to believe that Peter is still living the big feels. And then Jesus comes, and it says that from that day forward, all right, Jesus starts to tell them about how things are going to play out. And Peter, he thinks he has a better way of handling this. So imagine, if you would... Peter taking Jesus, the Son of Man, aside from the rest of the disciples and sort of walks him over to the side a little bit. And he says, Jesus, this isn't going, this isn't how things are going to happen. Matter of fact, it's a a little bit more, it's a little bit more uh, strong than that. Because in the original Greek, this basically means never, Lord. This is not going to happen to you. Literally, it means God be merciful to you. And it came to mean God forbid that this would happen. Again, we must remember that Peter's motives are pure. They are prompted by love. But that love often leads to the most egregious of errors. Peter's praise was in public. It was at least with the other 11 disciples, so his rebuke is also in public. As Mark tells us, Peter or Jesus turns and he sees the other 11, and he says to them in front, of, uh, in front of the others, he says, get out of my way. He uses the term Satan, which means adversary. And there are a lot of smart men through a lot, a lot of ages, through a lot, a lot of years and generations that have debated over what, Jesus, what this means when, when Jesus says, get out of my way, Satan. Some say that he's talking directly to Peter and saying, calling him Satan. Right? Some say he's, he's talking directly to Satan for confusing Peter. But regardless, we see that somebody, some force, is trying to interrupt God's mission, God's plan for how redemption is to come. We saw this also uh, on uh, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Three times Satan appears to offer Jesus an easy way out. Right? Hey, here's the fast track to, to wealth, to power, to fame. And, and Peter is basically saying the same thing here. You don't have to die. You are the Son of God. Surely this isn't God's will for you. Let's just bypass the cross uh, and let's just get to something bigger. Because still, and we see in the back of their minds that they had this understanding, at least partially, that Jesus was coming to be a political Messiah, 
a, a physical Messiah, that he was going to lead them in rebellion against Rome and was going to deliver them from the hands of Roman oppression. Right? They didn't like Rome. They wanted delivered. So a lot of people, a lot of Jesus followers, had this idea that Jesus was still going to lead them away from Rome. We saw that on Palm Sunday as he rides in on the back of, a, of an unbroke colt and they're bowing down and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's a military term that says, yes, finally, our military general, savior, warrior is here to, re, to redeem us. We see that Peter still didn't understand, but he had the best of attention, intentions. Peter, the first rock in the foundation of the church, quickly becomes a stone of stumbling. He who received the greatest revelation from God about the person of Jesus now, now confuses his own thinking with the mind of man. And I think that's why we are most attracted to studying and putting ourselves in Peter's sandals because we see so much of ourselves in him, in the way that he lived. So what are these things that Peter is focusing on? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. The word for hindrance comes from the word scandalion. Think of the English word that we get from scandalion, scandal. Peter is trying to scandalize God's plans, and he doesn't even know it. Because all he sees is him jumping to the rescue of somebody that he admires, that he loves, and that he follows. He is following love. But Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, we're only going to touch the tip of the iceberg today because this section of Scripture is actually a hinge that, that helps us transition from what we were talking about and that proclamation, that confession of Jesus as the Messiah into what Jesus says it costs a disciple to chase after him, to follow after him. So we're just going to touch the, the, the tip of the iceberg today, and that's going to flow into the next several weeks. But today, perhaps thinking of the things of man means that Peter is focused on himself and his ability to protect Jesus from harm. As we see in the, the Last Supper in, in John 13, as we see when Jesus is arrested in John 18, Peter seems overly confident in his power to protect. Now certainly Peter and the other disciples here are focused on Jesus' ability to overthrow the Roman government uh, and, and to focus and to bring them him and them to a place of prominence. And they're thinking about how he was, this profession was just made that he is the Messiah. And then he says the, these words, and it's like all of those plans come crashing down before they even get off the ground. So Peter wants to jump in and save the day. In verse 16, Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ. Peter believed he was a Messiah, anointed deliverer but we see here how much more he has to learn. He has to learn several things uh, about him. And let's look at what Jesus lays out here. In verse 21, uh, it, it, it says that, that he was teaching and Jesus taught them. And these letters aren't in red, but it's talking about what Jesus taught them. That, that he, it says that he will, 
Not that he will suffer, but that he must suffer. His suffering is essential. It's not accidental. And he will suffer in Jerusalem at the hand of Israel's unified leadership. That includes the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now, the same article, the, is used for all of these, so it shows how they are collectively together. And it's a group that's not always together. But they are together in their mission to destroy Jesus and his mission. Um, just as the scribes and the Pharisees hated each other at times, they came together in their hatred of Jesus. Here, you see the elders who have age, who have experience, who have reputation, come alongside the chief priests who stand between the high priest and all the ordinary priests. And you see the scribes who are the professional experts in the content and the application and the keeping of the law. They all come together at the hand of in their, hand, in their handing, handling of Jesus' death, of his arrest, of his torturing, of his crucifixion. And Jesus says in verse 21 that, three, that four things must happen. First, he must go to Jerusalem, the capital, the city of God. Second, he must suffer. Third, he must be killed. Jesus wasn't just going to die. He was going to be killed by other people. Uh, Matthew tells us that the means of, this means of this death was crucifixion. And fourth, he will be raised again. Notice the passive voice there. He will be raised. By who? By the Father. That, that confession originated from the Father. That's where the power came from. The power in defeating death comes from God. He is the agent of the resurrection. But hearing this, Peter says, mercy to you, or may God have mercy on you, or may God have mercy on you for saying this, or may God never let this happen. And he follows us up with, this shall never happen to you. The thought of this happening to Jesus was repugnant to Peter. And we, so we see why Jesus ordered the disciples to be quiet for a little bit longer. They didn't have all that they needed to know. And going at it on their own, without the Holy Spirit, is going to lead to more things like this. So he tells them to wait, and we see that what happens when they do wait uh, into Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And, but Peter delivers a counter-rebuke to, to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. And church, I want you to hear this this morning. In this moment, Peter unknowingly, unwittingly joined with Satan. And he did so by thinking like man rather than like God. Now, a, a lot of times, Scott or me or whoever's preaching spends a lot of time on the application part because we want to take Scripture and we, don't, and we, we, we hold to the belief that, 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 that the message of the message should be the message of the Scripture. And the Scripture cannot mean something different to us than it meant to Peter and the disciples when they first heard it from Jesus' lips. It can't change in meaning through the centuries. Now, the application of that may be different. So I shared this with the first service, that, that sometimes the application for the, uh, for the 845 service and the 1015 service is completely different because those services are made up completely of, of completely different groups of individuals. 
So the application. So we sometimes spend a lot of time on what the life lesson is. How can we take this encounter and apply it to our daily lives? Well, today, we're going to skip over that struggling with what the application is, and I just want to lay some stuff before you. And I just want you to wrestle with it. And I encourage you to go to the one sheet and for those application items. I encourage you to use it to go deeper. But today, I just want to share some stuff with you, some truth with you, and let you just wrestle with it this week. We, because we see here, and we believe in our lives, that there's really just two choices. There's God's way, and there's Satan's way. It's that black and white, that cut and dry, right? That right, that wrong. But in honestly, I mean, in, in actuality, there's really three choices that we battle with. Well, we can't, okay, still over here, you have, uh, you have Satan's work. You have working for Satan, doing the devil's work. And over here, you still have doing God's work. But over here, there's two categories. There's doing God's work God's way, and there's doing God's work my way. The battle usually isn't between one and three, God and devil. It's usually between God's work God's way, God's work my way. I want to share a few things with you so that we know, so to, to make you understand, to help you understand that uh, a little bit more. And as I was going through this at the be- in the first service, I chuckled a little bit because uh, uh, Jeff Foxworthy, his whole, you might know you're a redneck, you might be a redneck if, and then these things apply to you, and some of them aren't funny because they hit a little, hit a little bit too close to home. The same thing with these. We may chuckle at them, but as that chuckle is coming out, we realize that this, uh, this may be talking about me just a little bit. So, so what are these? Why, why was Peter so shockingly wrong here? It's because he was setting his mind on things of, of man, not of God. Peter hadn't decided to work for Satan, but he had because he got things out of uh, order. Uh, he was working for Satan by thinking he was working for God. So let's, let's just run through uh, a, a few of these. Here are some ways for you to know that you have mixed up the order, that you are leading out front, that you are doing, you're not doing God's work God's way, you're doing God's work your way. If you aren't in the habit of asking Jesus what to do before you do it, then you're out in front of him and you're doing God's work your way. And maybe you ask him to bless what you've already done, then you're doing God's work your way. I'm not asking for you to raise your hand, but if I was, I'm on stage, so mine would be much higher than all of you guys' on that one. Asking God to bless what we've already done. Put a lot of hard work in this, God. If you could, if you could just sprinkle your blessing on top of it, that would be awesome. When we're doing that, God's work my way. Or, or maybe you never think to ask him about anything at all. You just believe that you have a plan and Jesus needs your plan. You put yourself in front of Jesus and you are working for God in your own way. Or maybe you're a Christian who, who always seems, you think that you're the exception to the rules that everybody else follows. 
You're in front of Jesus when it comes to that sense of authority. Regular church life or rules don't apply to this, to this type of person because they feel privileged like Peter felt uh, in, in, this, in this story. Somewhere along the lines, they came to, think, uh, came to believe that they speak for Jesus and that he needs them in ministry. This is the type of person that you'll see a bumper sticker on their car that reminds us that Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. We believe that we have this special revelation that, that, that we are above and beyond everyone else and the rules. In all its forms, there is only one cure for this disease of putting ourselves before Jesus in working for God, and that is humility. Guys, Peter got humbled in this section of Scripture. And it hurt. Can you just, I can just see Peter, chest up, shoulders broad, get behind me, Satan, and just see him shrink with the words that Jesus said to him. Humility comes from the Lord's rebuke, usually delivered by a trial, by a failure, by a correction like we see today. By an obtain, and obtaining, it, obtaining it involves discomfort. Peter was no longer flying high. And Peter had been put in his place. And you can bet that he felt sheepish when Jesus rebuked him. And if we get in front of Jesus instead of behind him, expect a rebuke. It may come in the hand of, at the hands of godly friends, godly counsel, from, from family, from the church, from leaders. When this happens, accept his correction. We see Peter accept it. We see him do amazing things. Accept correction when it comes to you. Another thing that we need to, to, to learn from Peter's experience is that it teaches us that when we act or speak contrary to God's word, even when we don't realize it, even when we do it out of ignorance, we further the enemy's work. And that's how we end up with many Christians today, promoting the wrong selfish ideas by calling them God and calling them God's ideas. It's where this busybodiness and legalism all gets started and we start, it starts all manners of false teaching. It's where we get people saying things like, God helps those who help himself, who help themselves. That is the opposite of what this Bible teaches. The whole reason Jesus came is because we couldn't help ourselves. Or we justify a sinful choice in our life because we have this uh, wrongly placed belief that God just wants me to be happy. When your happiness has to involve something that's in direct conflict with God's will, will and God's word, it is not long-term happiness and it's going to lead you down a devastating road. We are furthering the work of Satan in our lives and in the lives that we have influence over. You see, to do the Lord's work in our own way becomes destructive. Even with our good intentions, even with a little bit of true theology uh, uh, stuck in there, and it seems obvious that we just plow ahead, leaving bodies on the right and on the left all over the place as we go. But to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way is searching and costly. We must make sure that we're doing what we're doing is rooted in God's Word. And the only way to know what is in God's Word is to be in God's Word. That's why we, we, we stress 
And we at times beg you to be in this word and why we give you opportunities and resources to be in this word, why we encourage you to be in care groups and for ladies to be in women's Bible study and men to be here on Thursday mornings for men's Bible study and to make sure your, your, your kiddos are in Upstreet and Team Kid and the Summit. Use those resources so that you know more about what God's will is and what his word says so that we don't veer off to the right or to the left. We we must make sure that what we're doing is rooted in God's Word. We must make sure that we are not leading out in front of the Spirit by just charging off and, and, and charging ahead. We must make sure that we are bathing what we are doing in prayer. And please hear me saying that we are not to hide behind prayer and tell somebody over and over and over and over that I'll pray about that, right? Don't use prayer as something to hide behind. Use it as a way to tell whether or not you are supposed to be a part of this and then move. We must be willing to to look for opportunities to serve our Redeemer and join in His mission. We must be willing to slash things out of our schedules because they have no redemptive value whatsoever. And church... We need to be honest with ourselves and with our families when things are on our schedule that have no redemptive value. Don't, don't try to, to rationalize your way into something being worthwhile. If you have to take 17 steps to think that something is worthwhile, go ahead and save yourself the energy. Just slash it. Remove things that don't have a redemptive value because what you're doing is you're confusing those who have been placed in your charge over what's important and what is not. We need to get in line behind God and act according to His will. And the key word is to act. Don't let us become just an institution uh, that is so concerned about accumulating and accumulating and accumulating knowledge. Let this word transform your lives so that we act differently and that we love differently. We will pay a price if we do God's work God's way. But man, it's one that we will be willing to pay, happy to pay. We will look different. Scripture tells us that. But that's okay with us because we realize that in that difference, that that's where we come into contact with who our true identity is in Jesus Christ. We will look different. And we will do hard things. Not so that at the end of the day we can sit back in the recliner and kick our feet up, pat ourselves on the back and say, good job. Not so we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and certainly not so that we can earn our salvation. But it's because we realize with every ounce of energy inside of us, every ounce of understanding inside of us, that what God did for us on Calvary's cross was the, um, was the, the ultimate display of love and power doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And all of our actions, all of our work, all of our time, all of our energy, all of our love, all of our life is an example of that. To do the Lord's way, work the Lord's way, is definitely searching and costly. But it's worth it. And it's also glorious. Because it's there and only there that He is. A lot of us are going to be disappointed one day when we stand before our, our Savior uh, and we, we, we have this long resume that we think looks good of everything that we have done. 
And I, can, I don't know how this is going to happen. I'm sorry if it doesn't happen this way. And I hope it doesn't happen this way for you. That God just takes that resume and crumples it up, tosses it to the side. All that was done for you, not for me. Doing God's work, God's way, church, demands us to be in tune with his will. And the only way to be in tune with his will, the only ways to be in tune with his will is to know his word and his will by spending time in his word and in times in his presence on our knees, talking to him. And please don't miss the, the, the step in there that where he says, be still and know. Let God have time to answer in your lives. Immerse yourself in his word. Spend every second you can in his presence.